Take your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. Thanksgiving during national upheaval. And some of y'all are going, oh no. What is he going to talk about? As Etta said this week, your sermon titles are just clickbait. And if you're not on the internet, you, you might not know what clickbait means, or if you're not on the internet much. But yes and, and no, I want to spark your interest. I want to get you curious. But yeah, I also want you to click on it and you know, show up. And so what's he going to say now? Thanksgiving during national upheaval. We're going to look at two uh, uh, weeks of, of Thanksgiving. Next week we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, I believe, and we're going to jump to the New Testament. We're going to see Thanksgiving during church crisis. This week it's during national upheaval. October 3rd, 1863, Thanksgiving was established as a formal and regular holiday by President Abraham Lincoln. If you are at, are at all a student of history, those years, that year, that date, October 3rd, 1863, will, will ring a bell and let you know something about when it happened. In the midst of the Civil War, uh, this would have been, if I remember correctly, uh, this would have been just a few months after Gettysburg. Um, I believe that Gettysburg was in 1863. At the height of the Civil War, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men had died to this point, and thousands more would die before the end of the Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln issues a Thanksgiving proclamation. He says a number of things in the proclamation. It's not that long. It's probably just a hair longer than the Gettysburg Address. He says in the first paragraph, though, the year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. Then he goes through and he, he names some of the things uh, that he uh, was talking about. He, he, he talks about how the, the, the fields had, had produced and how though uh, the, the machine of war had been activated, and, and especially in the Union in the North, uh, it was very much a uh, manufacturing uh, uh, boon. That, that agriculture had not lapsed. And he says, in the midst of a civil war an, of unequaled magnitude and severity, and he was not incorrect, that in the midst of this, God had still blessed. In the midst of this, there was still reason for thanksgiving. He goes on and gives credit where credit was due. He says, no human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. These are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. And then he begins to wrap it up, and the official declaration part of the declaration, he begins by saying, it has seemed to me fit and proper 
that they should be, uh, these blessings, should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, while dealing, God, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, remembered mercy. That's what Lincoln said, and Lincoln was spot on. This morning, from our passage that we're going to look at in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says something very similar. He spoke of thanksgiving as well in this passage, Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 18 through 22. It actually begins the beginning of Jeremiah 30, and uh, this, this theme goes through Jeremiah 33, uh, it, it talking about thanksgiving and restoration. But we're going to only look at these five verses. Read them for me, or read them with me, rather. Jeremiah writes, This is what the Lord says, I will certainly restore the fortunes of Jacob's tent, tents and show compassion on his dwellings. Every city will be rebuilt on its mound. Every citadel will stand on its proper site. Thanksgiving will come out of them, a sound of celebration. I will multiply them, and they will not decrease. I will honor them, and they will not be insignificant. His children will be as in past days. His congregation will be established in my presence. I will punish all his oppressors. Jacob's leader will be one of them. His ruler will issue from him. I will invite him to me, and he will approach me. For who would otherwise risk his life to approach me? This is the Lord's declaration. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Lincoln spoke of thanksgiving and blessing in the midst of a civil war. Jeremiah speaks of blessing and thanksgiving before the disaster even happens. Jeremiah is warning of the coming exile into Babylon, but it's not yet happened. It's coming. And he's telling them about the time when they will come out of exile. He is making promises to them, but he has also told them throughout his book why they are going to, into uh, exile. As Lincoln rightly commented about the Civil War, the coming trial to Israel was due to sin. Just as the Civil War was due to sin, so in this case was their exile coming, uh, the coming exile due to sin. Lincoln? I believe using Jeremiah and many, many other biblical passages understood that our thanksgiving is not dependent on circumstances, but on promises. It does not matter what's going on around us. We have so, so much to be thankful for. And that's what we see with Jeremiah here. Let's look at his, what he said here in verses 18 through 20. This is what the Lord says. He's making it clear this is not Jeremiah. And he says this. If you read Jeremiah, the, the common phrase that you see throughout Jeremiah, and we see it even in verse uh, 21, this is the Lord's declaration. He throws that in constantly. This is what the Lord says to you, Israel, right now, before, as, as I warn you of coming disaster, this is what God says to you. I will certainly 
restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents. That phrase actually is translated in other places, bring back from captivity. So the people are understanding. They're looking to Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, they've told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, if, if you don't mind, would you just shut up with your negative talk? Please don't tell us about captivity anymore. Please don't tell us about coming disaster anymore. Hey, is there anybody in here that'll preach a happy message? Is there anybody in here that will say something good? That's what the people said to Jeremiah. Shut up. We want a good message. And there were, there were, there were prophets that would stand up. Oh, the Lord will rescue us. Everything will be fine. It's not a problem. And Jeremiah is just going, nope. Uh-uh. That's not right. Jeremiah knew that God said there would be destruction, there would be captivity, but Jeremiah also knew that the message of hope was actually both in the discipline and in the the end of discipline. He would bring us back, he says. God says, I will certainly restore, bring you out of captivity. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents, but destruction must be. Come first. I will show compassion on his dwellings, God says. Every city will be rebuilt. What this actually says, every mound will be rebuilt. Now, if you're a fan of, of archaeology, and I just, see, I just see so many of you that are, uh, a fan of archaeology, in, if you go to an archaeological site, especially where a city has been, and has anybody here ever traveled to the Holy Land? I got one back there, a couple, couple of handful. Okay, I, I have never been. I want to go so bad someday. Um, but if, as you scan the landscape, as you go through the Holy Land, there are mounds, hills, dotting the landscape. And I don't mean it's like, you know, just, you look, it's like pine trees in Mississippi. I don't mean that. I, I, but, but when you look and you, you see and you go places and you're driving along, it's kind of flat, and suddenly there's this mound here. And you're, wow, that's interesting. There's a hill here. It must have been, you know, tectonic plates collided and pushed. No. What that is is where thousands of years ago they built a city, built a town. And then, for whatever reason, they tore the town down or parts of it down, and they just kind of spread it all out and they built a town on top of that, and then they got in a fight, and somebody tore it down and, and spread it, and then they built another one. And over the years, they keep doing this until you have these mounds. If you go there now, there are numerous uh, mounds that you can go and visit archaeological sites at. Uh, Southwestern Seminary, for example, uh, is regularly digging at one site called Tel Gezer. Now, the tell there, T-E-L, is that word for mounds. That's the word that, that Jeremiah uses here, when, when God, or God uses here. He says, every city will be rebuilt on its mound, on its tell. What he is saying here is, folks, there ain't going to be nothing left. There, there's going to be a mound of dirt and gravel and rubble. You won't go back home and find your houses and your city halls, and, and, and your palaces, and, 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 and the police station, and, and all these things. It, it, you're going to go back, and you're going to find a big pile of dirt. It's not a happy image. 
Destruction comes first. But then, then the city will be rebuilt. Then the citadel will stand. See, there will be security, economic, and safety, military. The destruction is going to happen, but let me tell you that God is going to rebuild you. God is going to restore you. God is going to do something great back at your home. He is going to give you back your inheritance. He's going to show up and say, I promised you this through your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told you it was going to be this way. I told you I would never forsake my promise, and I will not. You will go back, and I will give you back what, is, what I have promised you. Verse 19, God says, because I give you that, because of that, thanksgiving will result. Verse 19, thanksgiving will come out of them, out of those cities, out of those citadels, out of those towns, as a, a sound of celebration. Now, interestingly enough, thanks offerings or thank offerings are prescribed in uh, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law. But they are, they're not prescribed, actually. They are voluntary. A thank offering was something you would do because uh, God has answered a prayer for deliverance. So what he's saying is that the day is going to come when you get back home, you are going to offer these thank offerings that I have told you about and set up for you, and this is how it should look. He, he, he gave them the rules for it but didn't require it. You will do that voluntarily because you will be responding to your answered prayer by me for your deliverance. You're going to thank me someday, is what he's saying. You, you've got to think that this had to be really hard for the people to hear. God, how are we going to thank you when you're going to send us off for 70-something years, destroy our homes here, give us a new home over there. It, I guess it's going to be a home or a prison cell or, or, or something. We're going to die there. We're going to raise children and grandchildren there. How are we going to thank you? And God says, you will thank me because I will deliver you. This celebration that he talks about, a sound of celebration, this is actually a sound of laughter. There will be joy, there will be giddiness, there, there will be lightheartedness because of this restoration. The interesting part about this word being used, laughter, celebration, it is used by the man that we refer to as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was a crier. Just like a couple of guys in here I learned about Friday night at a movie. We got some criers in this place. I'm not pointing out anybody but uh we <laughs> you laughed awfully loud there anthony um we jeremiah was a weeper he cried but, but why would he not would that we would cry a little more often at our sinfulness would that we would cry a little more regularly at the fact that we deserve punishment would that we would cry in joy a little more often at our salvation that paid for that punishment. Sound of laughter will come from this restoration, Jeremiah says. 
But is the celebration for Jeremiah? Is the celebration for the people hearing this message at this time? Is that grounded in current circumstances? Let me help you. No. Currently, Jeremiah, as I said, is preaching to people who are in denial. And I don't mean a river in Egypt. They are denying that this will ever happen. Literally, Jeremiah, shut up. Get us a preacher that will preach us happy stuff. And Jeremiah says, they can preach it all they want to, but it's not going to happen. They are liars. And yet, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, says there will be celebration. There will be laughing. That celebration is in the promise. The people found no joy in chapter 30. Based on what we can see from, from the folks who heard this sermon, they did not enjoy this sermon. It was like, oh, well, good. Whew. Hey, all let's, let's celebrate. That was not their response because they still did not want to hear that there would be any sort of destruction. They did not hear that there would be any sort of discipline. They did not want to hear that there would be any sort of judgment. But let me promise you, for us today, and very likely for Jews for years after this, this promise brought joy. This promise brought celebration because that is where we find our joy. We find our joy in the promises of God. That's where we look for it, and that's where we find it. He promises a few things. He, he tells them there was going to be thanksgiving. He told them that the, the restored nation. He says there will be restored families in verse 20. His children will be in past days. Uh, very likely what he's talking about is strong and numerous families. I saw a, a picture the other day uh, of, on Facebook of uh, George W. Bush, who we didn't know while he was in office, but found out afterward that he was a pretty avid painter, was, was getting better at it. It was how he relaxed while he was in the, in the White House, and since he has been out of the White House, he has taken it up very seriously and has gotten pretty dadgum good at it. And what he was painting on Friday, I believe it was, I assume the picture was from Friday, is he is painting portraits of wounded veterans that he sent to Iraq and Afghanistan. That on his orders as commander-in-chief were wounded in battle. Think about uh, Lincoln or even Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Sending men into battle. Think about the generals. Uh, I've read a lot uh, about Robert E. Lee. The toll that it took on them, knowing that they were sending men in to be, as many of them called them, cannon fodder. The knowledge that they were sending sons and fathers and brothers to certain death on a daily basis. I cannot imagine what that weight is on a commander. And I really don't want to. I'm, I'm good without that. Yet, we have that happen constantly. What God is telling them and what the people understood these days is they had watched their sons and brothers and fathers die over and over and over in battles. At this point, 
it, Judah, it's the southern kingdom, not the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel at this point hasn't existed for about 140 years or so. Judah has fought battle after battle and they have seen their young men die until the population is decimated and God promises that your families will be restored. Once again, you will have sons. You will have men in your cities. Once again, your families will be strong. But I believe here, the children will be in past days because inherent here is a raising them in the way they should go. Remember, what's coming, the, the promise of destruction, the promise of this mound is a result of sinfulness, is a result of the people of God not following God, being the people of God in name only. Like having the name on the wall of such and such, and such church, but in no way acting or living as a called out people of God. That's the way Israel lived. So inherent in this strong and numerous restored families is the idea of raising them as they should go to follow God. Personal responsibility is, here is not removed. There is a promise just as sure as the promise of deliverance is the promise of discipline if we continue in disobedience. Absolutely sure is that discipline. So the day could come when Israel suffers this again. But I don't want to get ahead of myself here. He promises restored families in verse 20. In verse, uh, the next part of verse 20 he promises restored churches. His congregation will be established. God will again be the center of worship because this is what it boils down to anyway. This is why they find themselves where they find themselves because God had not been the center. There will be a strength and a power to our churches when God is the center of those churches. God will restore the congregation when we are truly in His presence. As he says there, his congregation will be established in my presence. Church restoration begins with God. Then it flows through the individual and into the community of faith. Notice the progression there. God does not restore a church. God restores individuals. And as God works through those individuals, He then restores and revives a church. Jeremiah promises Israel, Judah at this point, I will restore you. But it will begin with me, he says. It will begin with your relationship with me. It will begin then, it will move then to individual relationships with me. And when the individual relationships are right, then the community relationship will be right. God promises to restore churches. God promises in this verse 20, the last phrase, I will punish all his oppressors. The oppressors will be punished. Those who persecuted God's people will be punished. Now, the Psalms often deal with the apparent victory of the, the, the oppressor. Go back and read them. 
It's so often the psalmist talking about, God, why have you not punished them? Why do they win and your people lose? Why is it always we're on the, uh, the losing end of all of this? And it is only, God promises, it is only a temporary victory for the oppressors. Who is the number one oppressor of the church today? Don't say a government. Don't say a people group. Don't say a religion. The number one oppressor of the church today is Satan. Sure, he uses various tools to do it, but that is the number one oppressor of the church today. God promises that the oppressor will be dealt with. A restored nation in a time of upheaval, thank you, God. A restored family in a time when we are losing our families, thank you, God. A restored church in a time when churches are dying daily, thank you, God. Oppressors punished in a time when it seems like we cannot get ahead against those who would beat us down. Thank you, God. And then Jeremiah has the linchpin. Verse 21. Jacob's leader will be one of them. We start getting some idea of what he's talking about already. The scepter from will not pass from Judah. His ruler will issue from him. Oh, it's one of Jacob's kids, all right? I will invite him to me and he will approach me. Oh, this is going to be a pretty good guy. He can, he'll approach God? That's, that's impressive. Oh, look, yeah, God even, for, for who would otherwise risk his life to approach me, right? Because you, you can't see God and live. You, mortal man cannot make that approach to God. Who, who in the world could he be talking about? Well, it's not as clear here as it is later on. But the, mas, uh, the Messiah will rule. Jesus, we know his name now. They just knew him as the coming Messiah. He will rule. See, there's only one who can approach God. A restored nation? A restored family? Thanksgiving in the midst, uh, oppressors punished. Who can do all these things? My Jesus can do all those things. The Messiah who rules. The Messiah who takes on a kingly and a priestly role. Various kings tried it. Samuel came close. He was not a king, he was a judge. He, he, he came close to that prophet, priest, and king. David, good, good king most of the time, very prophetic, especially as he, as he poured out these psalms that God gave to him priestly, and that he brought the ark to its home. But, but then one after the other, they failed in their responsibilities. And Jeremiah says, no, there's going to be one who's going to fulfill those roles. He's going to be the leader that can approach God. That is my King Jesus. And we see that new covenant fulfilled 
fully, or talked about fully, in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And I've read this, I believe, a couple of weeks ago. It says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke even though I had married them. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will write my words on their heart. That's the promise. That's the promise in the midst of political, national upheaval. Now, based on who's here this morning, just what little I know, there's no feeling of national upheaval at the moment. I know who some of y'all voted for on Tuesday just because you've told me. Y'all may know who I voted for if, if you ask me. I'll tell you that one too. But anytime there's a transition of power, look, We've got it great in our country. Power transitions easily. Yeah, we've got our bumps. I'm not you know, denying that. But power transitions easily in our country. But you cannot deny that we are in national upheaval. Folks, whether it's an election, whether it's a war, whether the U.S. comes to an end someday down the road, National upheaval is coming for, for this country. Verse 22 tells us how to deal with that. Tells us what we need to focus on. The Messiah will rule, verse 21. Sorry, I lost my page here. Jacob's leader will be the one, uh, will be one of them. He is the ruler that will issue from him. This is the Lord's declaration. The restored relationship is what we're looking for. The restored relationship is what we need. In the midst of whether your candidate got elected or not, in the midst of seeing the end is near or the end is averted, there's only one relationship that matters. This restored relationship God says, verse 22, you will be my people and I will be your God. Are you familiar with Hosea? He prophesied a little before uh, Jeremiah, if I've got my times right. He had some kids. Uh, actually, his wife had some kids. Hosea didn't. Named one of those kids, not my people. Great name, right? Not my people, come here. Come here, not my people. I mean, I've got some crazy nicknames for my children, I understand that. Uh, but not my people, really? Well, it was, it was an example. It was God saying, y'all aren't my people anymore. And actually, if you think about it, when, Isaiah, when Hosea was calling his child, not my people. A rough name. This, this, verse 22 you will be my people. God reverses Hosea's kid's name. 
God answers Hosea's kid's name. This is covenantal formula language. This is restored based on the new Messiah, or the Messiah, the, the new covenant. It's based on when the Messiah returns. Thanksgiving in the midst of national upheaval. If you think I'm talking about the U.S., if you think the U.S. is in this passage, let me tell you, you're not looking deep enough. You're not looking far enough ahead. The Bible doesn't talk about the U.S. I don't think ever. It's talking to God's people. See, this is about our eternity. This is about how God will purify the church, call his people home, and set his son on the throne. Did you get what you voted for Tuesday? Congratulations. Are you mourning what happened Tuesday? I'm sorry. But either way, that's not your hope. We give thanks whoever is in the Oval Office because we have a hope in someone else, in another place. We have a hope for eternity, not for four years or eight years or however long the results of policies passed by the president may, uh, may last. We have our hope in Jesus. We can give thanks right now, Tuesday evening when we went to bed, or Thursday, uh, Wednesday morning when we woke up, regardless of our emotional state, we give thanks because we know who the king is. We give thanks for what we can't see. We give thanks for the promises, promises that will be fulfilled. We give thanks knowing that today might not be my best day. We give thanks knowing that today might not be the best day for the country. We give thanks knowing that today might not be the best day, period, or even a good day, or it may be a string of bad days put together, but we give thanks knowing that the promise is coming. We give thanks knowing that we will one day, thanksgiving, give thanks, bring a thank offering to God. It will come from us, a sound of celebration and laughter because we give thanks that this world is not our home. We give thanks that though we're citizens of the U.S., we're actually citizens of a different kingdom. I, I'm a U.S. citizen, but first I'm a child of the king, and I'm a subject of the king. See, we give thanks for our king. I don't know what the future holds. I, I have some reservations. But my reservations are about temporal, temporary, to be honest, trivial things in light of eternity. If they took away all of our constitutional rights tomorrow, you know how that would affect the church? Zero. Why? Because the gospel is not dependent on constitutional rights. The gospel is not dependent on the government saying, it's okay for you to talk about Jesus. Sunday school again this morning. Peter and John standing before, uh, the, in Acts 4, standing before the, the, the uh, Sanhedrin. Don't speak in that name. It is not allowed. It is not your constitutional right to tell other people about Jesus. And they said, big whoop in the literal Hebrew, big whoop. 
you may tell us we can't talk about Jesus. The government may, say, may someday tell us we can't talk about Jesus, but that will not stop us from telling about Jesus. I'm asking you this morning, do you know my king? S.M. Lockridge, y'all, y'all cheered when he, do you know my king? You know, you, you, you loved that video, and I do too. I'm asking you this morning, do you know my king? Are you a subject of the king that says, constitutions don't matter, and presidents don't matter? Give thanks this morning that my message to you, that your message to others, is that thanksgiving, uh, restoration, salvation will come. Why can we give thanks? Because I know my king. Do you know my king? Very simply, to know my king, understand something. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're a sinner. You are alienated from God because of that sin. The wages of that sin is death. You will die for your sin. You're going to die anyway. Your body's going to quit, we'll bury you, you'll turn to dirt, dirt and worms leach you. I mean, let's just be, I've talked to the guys that work at the funeral homes, they pump you full of stuff, they put you in an airtight thing, it doesn't help. You're going the way of ashes to ashes, dust to dust, just like the Bible says. That's going to happen, but thank God for two things. One, you won't feel that. Two, that's not the end of you. It's not the end of it. There's an eternity. Now let's backtrack on the thanks. If we don't know Jesus, it's an eternity in hell. If we've trusted Jesus as our Savior, it's an eternity in heaven with him. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you have that? Do you understand that God loves you so much that while you were a sinner, God proved his love for you and sent his son to die for you? This morning, do you want to experience that salvation? Every uh, one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God has, back up, you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you want to give thanks this morning in the midst of political upheaval, in the midst of national upheaval? You might can find some hope in some people, but you can only find your true hope in Jesus. Will you find that hope this morning and give thanks for the, to the only one who can save you? I pray that you will. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, that you provide promises and answers and hope in times when we are dismayed, like maybe some of us were on Tuesday night times when we are overjoyed, like maybe some of us were on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. Lord, when we are distraught and without hope, as maybe some of us were on Wednesday morning. God, I pray today that we would put our, not just saving faith, Though, I pray for those this morning who, who don't know you as Savior, that they would put their saving faith in you. But I pray that those of us who are saved would put our daily faith in you. 
we do those things that we need to do as citizens to make a difference where we can. But God, we do not trust in chariots and horses or tanks and, and guns or policies and politicians, but Lord, we trust in you, that we would put our faith in you so that it does not matter how elections turn out. It does not matter who says they're in control. It does not matter the policies that are passed. Lord, your church will go on. Whether we can preach in that name, whether you tell us we can preach in that name or not, we have no option but to preach in the name of Jesus. And we as the church will go forward in that name regardless of what name is on the Resolute Desk at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. God, we pray that our message will rise above the message of politics, will rise above divisions over politics, and Lord, that our message of salvation will be what's heard from the churches before a message of moralism, a message of politics, or a message of hatred. Lord, may the message of the grace of Jesus Christ be what is heard from your people every day. And may we rejoice in, the, in thanksgiving knowing the promise that we will be restored. We will be renewed. Lord, our oppressor will be defeated. And we'll spend an eternity with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to a time of decision, what do you need to do? Are you, are you distraught? Are you worried? Are you fearful for our country? Stop. Trust Jesus. Are you fearful for your eternity? Okay, good, don't stop. But answer that fear with Jesus this morning. Come and let me talk to you. Trust him as Savior. You make a decision for Christ this morning as Brother Donald leads us.